0: Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. This is episode 169. I'm your host, Danny Matranga, and in today's episode, I'm going to go over 10 of the most common fitness questions that I see asked. Uh, These are asked specifically of me, but I also see them just asked more generally amongst different places where you might find fitness professionals interacting with people who aren't so initiated. These aren't asked in any particular order, but these are questions that I see coming up an awful lot, so much so that I started compiling a list. And depending on where you're at in your fitness journey, some of this stuff might feel a little bit obvious, but we're going to break it down in a way that I think is really exciting and educational. So we'll unpack each and every question so that you can get the most out of it no matter where you're at. And if you're somebody who likes to share health and fitness with the people around you, perhaps your coworkers, perhaps your loved ones, perhaps your friends, family, etc., Um, this would be a great episode to share with them because we're going to talk a lot about how to go from zero to kind of getting off the ground and running. Um, And I think you guys will get a ton out of it. So before we get into the 10 most common questions I'm asked, I'd like to take a moment to plug one of my absolute favorite sponsors of the podcast, and that is Elemental Labs LMNT. LMNT is my go-to electrolyte supplement. I absolutely love it. I take it every morning upon waking in 32 ounces of water. I do this because the General recommendations for sodium intake for non athletes are quite small, less than 2.5 grams per day. But for people who are athletic, those numbers are quite high. But there still seems to be some conventional understanding that sodium is worse for you than it is. And once I started supplementing with electrolytes that include sodium and potassium and magnesium, I noticed I got substantially better pumps in the gym. I was able to train better. I started feeling the cognitive effects of kind of being hydrated more rapidly. Oftentimes I wake up with a headache feeling dehydrated and I go straight to coffee and get more dehydrated. So taking time in the morning to get these electrolytes in, drinking them in the sauna, drinking them when I'm playing golf, drinking them when I'm training has really made a huge difference. And their founder, Rob Wolf, who was just on the Joe Rogan experience last week, he had a very interesting episode on food, nutrition that I actually found to be quite enjoyable. Regardless of what you think of Rogan, he's definitely somebody who has had a unique mix of nutritional authorities on the podcast. And I thought Rob presented some pretty amazing stuff, but this is an awesome, awesome product. I love it. I take it every morning and I want to share it with you for actually just free. All you have to do is pay shipping. Go to drinklmnt.com slash coach Danny and check out just covering shipping and they'll send you all eight of their top flavors. My favorite are the raspberry and the citrus salt. So getting into it, guys, the 10 most commonly asked fitness questions, these tend to come from novices. Let's go ahead and start off with number 10, which is if I want to get in shape, do I need to work out every day? Um, people tend to ask this, I think in large part due to confirmation bias. They think that people who are very fit work out every day um, in order to kind of soften the blow that, hey, like you don't actually really need to do a whole heck of a lot to stay in modestly good shape. Uh, I'll obviously unpack this, but many people think like, hey, you know, the person who I know who's in really good shape, they, they work out every day and that's just not me. They have these self kind of limiting beliefs. So I I do think that many people are aware that you don't have to train every single day, but some people really believe that the, the difference between where they're at and where they would like to be is committing every single day to hard exercise and never missing a day. And I find that that's really unsustainable. In fact, most of the clients that we work with through my coaching company, Core Coaching Method, train somewhere between three to five days a week. Even those of our, uh, even those clients of ours who are perhaps the most athletic in that they're either competing for something, they're training really hard for something, uh, or even if they're just general population looking to get in better shape, their training frequency usually lands between that three to five day a week mark. I think that's the sweet spot. Certainly not seven days a week, unless of course your workouts are short concise, and that's just what works for you. But for most people, and I I told you guys we'd unpack this, so I think we really should because there's a lot here. For most people, how many times you go to the gym is going to be contingent on your schedule. But if you're totally new, you can get away with two to three times a week of 30 to 60 minute workouts where you focus mostly on incorporating compound lifts. Um, Those would be lifts that use multiple joints and multiple muscles, so they're more efficient. You can definitely use machines. You can use body weight. You can use free weights. You can really scale this. So it can be as simple as, you know, two days a week for 30 to 60 minutes using only machines and training only compound movements. Or it can be as advanced as, you know, six day a week push pull leg training that revolves mostly around, you know, high level barbell execution work with like squats, bench press, you know, all these technically challenging movements and a lot of assistance work and that isolation work. And your workouts can be longer, but almost never, ever. Am I recommending seven days a week of training? If I ever do that, it's for my clients who I think are the most neurotic about their exercise. They might have a borderline exercise addiction, which is definitely a thing. And I'm just trying to oblige that. And I will oftentimes give them at least one or two days a week where they're not really loading the tissue too much. This might be an opportunity to work on cardio. This might be an opportunity to work on mobility. But you absolutely do not need to work out every day to get in shape. Moving on to question number two. This is also very common, and it's how long should I work out for? And I know for a lot of you guys, you're like, I don't know, like I can work out for a pretty long time. I actually do have an answer for this how long I like most clients' workouts to be. And it tends to be somewhere between 45 and 90 minutes. There's nothing wrong with like a 15, 20, 30 minute workout if that's all you have time for. It's substantially better than nothing. But I do like to get a little bit of a warm up in and like at least one warm up set. Per exercise. So, for example, a warm up can be as abbreviated as a five minute jog, all the way to a 15 minute dynamic warm up, where, say, you're doing squats, you might do a little bit of the bike to warm up your hips and knees and get some blood in the quads. You then might do some stretching to reduce tone in the hip flexors, some lateral band walks to increase the blood flow to the muscles of the outer hip, and then get the bar on your back and work up to your first working set over the course of like 15 minutes. There's a lot of ways to warm up, but I do think the shorter those workouts are, the more you have to fit into less time. So I do like that 30 minute mark as the lowest end of the threshold. The reason I top it out at 90 is because something changes in our physiology the longer that we train. We increase more of a hormone known as cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And you see, many people already are fairly stressed. They, you know, The things that we do, our work produces stress, our personal life produces stress, our relationships produce stress, all of these things in our world produce stress, and exercise is a stressor. And depending on how folks look at stress, that can impact our overall perception of things, but it's undeniable that exercise is an extra stressor on the body. And so if you're already insanely stressed, which I find a lot of people are, an effective and efficient workout that doesn't sacrifice output. Uh, that is less than 90 minutes is almost always better. Not just from an efficiency standpoint, but a stress management standpoint than a two or three hour marathon session where you're going through the motions and just pulling yourself across the finish line. I found that after that 90 minute threshold, most people's ability for high output training tends to decrease. And if you're... intelligent in how you put your workouts together and you leverage compound lifts and intelligent program design or you have a coach who's putting these things together for you so that all you really need to do is show up. For almost every conceivable fitness, performance, fat loss client, I think you can get the work done in under 90 minutes or pushing right up against that 90-minute threshold. For people who are competing at the highest level of sport, for people who have additional uh, recovery capabilities due to things like anabolic and androgenic steroids, obviously this is a different story, but for the average person, you're looking to probably work out somewhere between 30 and 90 minutes per session. Okay, number eight, this is a physiological question and it's a good question, it pops up a lot and it's can I build muscle and lose fat at the same time? And so this has been around for a long time, this concept of body recomposition or changing the way in which the body looks while by gaining muscle while losing fat. And early on in the kind of online fitness game, when people started communicating the concept of energy balance with regards to gaining and losing weight, Uh, A kind of a myth arose, which was that, hey, a calorie surplus is the only way to gain muscle and a calorie deficit is the only way to lose fat. You cannot do those two things at the same time. And that's partially true. The part that's true is that you do need to be in a calorie deficit to lose body fat and you do need to be in a calorie surplus to optimally build muscle. But you can build muscle in a deficit but you can't lose fat in a surplus. Meaning while if you like, say you've never trained before, this this is something you see a lot when you work with clients uh, who are general population and you start with them. This I learned a lot when I was working at 24 hour fitness with clients who'd never a resistance trained in their life. They'd get in a deficit. They'd start exercising, making healthy eating decisions, lose a ton of weight, but obviously add a bunch of muscle because they were so deconditioned. They never trained. Their body was a sponge and very receptive to that stimulus. However, Those gains would pretty quickly kind of start to decelerate, especially if the client was in a deficit. For clients who were maybe eating at maintenance or even in a small surplus, when they start training, they gain muscle much more rapidly, but the diminishing marginal returns don't set until later. For people who are much more advanced and have been training for many, many years, trying to build muscle while on a deficit is very challenging and very counterproductive, and it might well be impossible given that it's just hard to turn, you know, a very low amount of fuel into more muscle when you already have so much muscle to fuel. So the idea that you can lose body fat while building muscle is something we can kind of lean into and say, yeah, I think that's true, but I do think it is more... um, true for those of us who are just getting started or who are kind of new to this whole thing. For people who are more advanced, I do think that periods of caloric restriction known as cutting um, to get lean and not focus so much on building muscle are really helpful. You can still focus on training to maintain and build muscle. Um, but if you want to add you know, on the margins a little bit more, and you've been training for years and years and years, periods of caloric surpluses Often known as massing, bulking, or lean bulking, depending on the size of the surplus um, are really effective because your body's ability to build muscle um, you know does not not only does it fluctuate from sex to sex from you know various points of the lifespan, but it also changes with your training age. Suffice to say, the longer you've been training in all likelihood, the more that you're gonna have to work to build muscle you know, longer, the longer you've been in the game. Moving on to number seven. Should I lift with high reps or low reps? Should I lift light and chase a burn or should I lift heavy and really strain? So let's talk a little bit about repetition ranges and what they do best. So let's talk about Primary adaptations too, we'll throw that in, but let's start with the lowest rep range, one to five. And you can say one to six, but let's just say one to five reps. This is a rep range that let's say you use a very lightweight and you do one to five reps, it won't be particularly challenging. So it doesn't lend itself well to lighter load training. But it does lend itself very well to heavier load training, particularly with things like compound lifts. So heavy squatting, heavy deadlifting, heavy pressing, heavy rowing, all of these compound movements that are very exhausting, fatiguing, and require a lot of attention, and kind of mechanical, like just all hands on deck. Um... I wouldn't really love to do those for high reps, meaning like I wouldn't want to try to do a heavy deadlift for high reps. I'd rather do a heavy deadlift for low reps. That lower rep range tends to be the best for building strength for obvious reasons. If you only have to pick something up once, you can usually have a little more output then, if you have to pick something else up. For example, if you have to bring in one chair, you can bring that chair in with quite a bit of gusto. But if you have to bring in 50 chairs, you might begin to pace yourself. If you have to bring in one super heavy chair that weighs more than everything else, you might wanna do that first, and you might only wanna do it one time, but lifting that one heavy chair might make, tra- like, make, might make transferring the rest of the chairs easier in the future. I don't know why I selected chairs there. I think I thought about all the time that I've moved those metal folding chairs. But the real point that we're after here is that these lower rep ranges are great for building strength. And that's pretty applicable to most people. If you're looking to build muscle, you want to be strong. If you're looking to be athletic, you want to be strong. If you're looking to lose body fat, you want to be strong. It's helpful as a human to be strong. So having some training set aside for those lower rep range compound movements, I think is a really good idea. But what about the moderate reps, right? People always say low reps or high reps. What about the moderate reps? This would be anything north of six and let's say south of 12. So six to 12. These are rep ranges that are probably going to allow the set to take a little longer. They're going to allow for more volume to be accumulated, meaning like maybe you can squat 300 pounds one time, but you can squat 200 pounds 10 times. That means that a set of one at 300 is 300 pounds of total volume, but a set of 10 at 200 is 2000 pounds of total volume. So these moderate rep ranges are really good for accumulating volume, challenging your tissues, making the set take longer. And they're still somewhat reasonable when we talk about compound movements. So you can definitely do 10 rep squats, 10 rep leg presses, 10 rep Romanian deadlifts, 10 rep barbell presses, 10 rep machine chest supported rows. Uh, And you can do them with quite a bit of weight and you can do them pretty close to failure, which is why this rep range is often called the hypertrophy rep range. I don't think that's true. I think you can build muscle at all rep ranges. In fact, the literature would support that you can build muscle at all rep ranges so long as you're making sure that the work you do is close to failure and sufficiently challenging and progressed over time. But that middle rep range is really good for the bulk of your training. I think if you're looking at losing body fat or building muscle, you might do the majority of your training between eight to 12, six to 12 reps. Um, With some assistance work thrown in there in the higher rep range, which we'll touch on in a minute, and the occasional heavy set. For performance athletes, you might want to do a little bit more of the heavy work because you don't want all of the additional volume that comes with those moderate rep, moderate load sessions because you need to save some juice for your actual sport. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode. So what about that highest rep range? We'll say 12 to beyond that. This tends to also be fairly good for hypertrophy, but this is a rep range that I think lends itself well to isolation exercises and machine work. So things like lateral raises, dumbbell curls, leg extensions, calf raises, abdominal work. A lot of these exercises don't necessarily feel amazing when you're loading them up super well. Um, and because of the positions that the joints are in and a propensity to use momentum, I often find these exercises are more efficient when done with lighter weights for longer periods of time time with more emphasis on technique and control. A lot of people will call this chasing a burn, but quite frankly, I think you can use all three of these rep ranges. One myth worth debunking while we're here is the notion that lighter weights for higher reps will build a sleek, leaner, more feminine physique, and that heavier loads done closer to failure will build a more masculine, manly physique. When in fact, the truth of the matter is all of the rep ranges and all of the training styles will contribute to overall physique development. And in all likelihood, how that reflects on your specific body is going to be driven by things like genetics and nutrition. Number six is if I'd like to lose Body fat, should I do cardio or should I lift weights? My answer is fairly simple and I'll keep it succinct. I think you should do both, but I think you should do more weightlifting because it's better for preserving muscle when you're in a calorie deficit, which is very, very important. And while cardio is better minute per minute at helping you burn calories, if you get your diet in check, and you make sure you're in a deficit every single day, and you lift weights, you will lose a considerable amount of body fat without having to do any cardio, and adding a little cardio on top will speed things along. So that's how I like to do it. For most clients, I'm recommending they get between somewhere around 60 to 90% of their total exercising time with weights, with 40 to 10% shifting towards cardio based on goals and personal preference for people who generally just wanna lose body fat, um, I think somewhere around 70, 30 might be good. Meaning if you have 100 minutes a week to work out, maybe you do three or well, let's do 200 minutes. Maybe you do 60 minutes of cardio, so 20 minutes of cardio on your non training days. That would leave you with 145 or 140 minutes, so somewhere around 4, three 45 minute resistance training workouts. So 45 minute lift, 20 minute cardio, 45 minute lift, 20 minute cardio, alternating, taking a day off here and there would be a really good split for general population, fat loss, and what I would consider health. You know, that's going to give you time to build anaerobic strength, help prevent joint pain, help prevent. Bone loss, help prevent age-related sarcopenia, and then the cardio is going to be good for protecting your heart, your cardiovascular system, of course, your uh, lungs. All of these different things are going to be improved pretty substantially by doing just a little bit of cardio. Moving on to question number five is, should I stretch before I work out? This is a very common question, or should I stretch before or after? I would recommend stretching after if you're going to be using static stretches. These are exercises designed to extend the length of the tissue, meaning like, okay, my hamstrings are tight. I'm going to bend over and touch my toes for a minute. That's going to lengthen the hamstrings. I would position that at the end of the workout because stretching a tissue that you're about to load isn't always the best for power output and it could even lead to injury increase or increase the risk of injury. So for pre-workout stuff, I'd recommend a little bit of aerobic work to get your heart pumping and the quote unquote blood flowing. But really what we're after is elevating the temperature of your body because your muscles will contract better at warmer temperatures 98.6 is an optimal for muscle contraction so something to get warmed up there and then some stuff specific to what you're going to do so if you're going to be training a lot of the upper body probably want to get the shoulders moving probably want to do some like maybe some face pulls maybe some T flies on the TRX maybe some internal external rotation work if we're going to be doing legs and squatting maybe we want to get the ankles and the hips mobile if we're going to be doing hinging maybe we want to get the core engaged and we want to get the hip flexors to chill right so a little more specific with the warm-ups, a little bit more than stretching. You can throw some foam rolling in there too. And then on the back end, I don't hate the idea of some static stretching. So before workout, not my favorite. After workout, probably the best place for it. Okay, number four. How long does it take to see results? I find for most people, it takes somewhere between six to eight weeks before they're able to visualize results, feel results, and feel like they're in a rhythm. Things are always happening under the hood when you're talking about muscle gain, performance enhancement, and fat loss that you are not seeing. Um, But I tend to find that either performance increases take a little bit of time to see, muscularity increases take probably the longest time to see, and fat loss, while you can start to see changes really rapidly on the scale initially, um, a lot of times what you'll find is people can't actually visualize the change for at least a month or two, just because when you look at your body every day... It's a lot different than maybe somebody who sees you every couple weeks, which is why we all have that friend that every time they see you, if you're on a fitness journey, they compliment you and go, wow, you look so good. I haven't seen you in a while. And you go, wow, really? I feel like I haven't changed. Well, you feel that way because you see yourself every single day. They haven't seen you since the last time they saw you and the two checkpoints, the time they saw you previously and the time they saw you now, they saw a considerable change. But when you see yourself hundreds of times a day, every day in that same time frame, it's much harder to parse out change. But I would say give yourself at least a month to begin to see results. For newbies or newer people looking to lose body fat who are using exercise, particularly resistance training, as in modality, it's important to know that the scale might take a while to come down because again, going back up the list, we talked a little bit about this already, you might be building muscle because you're so deconditioned, you're just new to this. And adding muscle while simultaneously losing body fat is causing the scale to drop more slowly than you'd like. There's also a lot of fluctuations that can naturally occur when you're using the scale as your primary tool to gauge progress or gauge your results. So be sure to measure your lifts in the gym, measure your circumference measurements or just general measurements, how your clothes are fitting is also another form of measurement. These are all really effective ways to see how you're doing. Okay, number three, what's the best diet for weight loss? So a lot of people will ask this question um, because they want a restrict dietary protocol with a lot of rigidity and a lot of constraints, meaning like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. What's the best way? Is it Whole30? Is it keto? Is it vegan? Is it fasting? What's the best diet? I want the set of constraints that is going to guarantee me the best results. And I find that a lot of these fat diets don't do that. They can help with fat loss, but the truth of the matter is all diets work the same way. So this is specific for weight loss. I mean, a lot of people ask me, what's the best diet for building muscle? uh, What should I eat if I'm an athlete? But the truth of the matter is about 80% of people asking me specifically about diets are asking because of a weight loss goal. It's probably closer to 90%. And so I think the best goal you should have when dieting for fat loss is to try to find a protocol that you can stick with. Don't be looking for the one that's going to help you lose fat the fastest. Look for the one that you can stick with. It's also got to allow for you to maintain a calorie deficit and get a good amount of protein and probably vegetables in to take care of your nutrient needs. Here's why I like the just simplified, hey, count your calories, get a good amount of daily protein, eat lots of vegetables, and let the carbs and fats fall where they may. I tend to find that just tracking Helps people lose weight because they start to get a really rapid idea very quickly of how many calories are in the foods they typically eat. And it's a good educational experience compared to something like a meal plan where you're like, eat this, and if you don't eat this, you're gonna you're not gonna lose fat. Like this is the way, just follow this. And people will do that and they'll be like, I have no idea why that worked, but it worked. I must have been in a deficit, but I really don't know the value of the foods I'm eating from a caloric standpoint. So I kind of just have to eat that way. Forever to keep the fat off, or to lose fat again in the future. And I think what works better is identifying your total daily energy expenditure, how many calories you burn in a day, when you like account for your activity and your behaviors, and you take that number and you eat less than that, you're in a deficit. And then try to get about 0.7 to 1 gram a pound per uh, per gr- one 0.7 to 1 gram per pound of body weight in protein. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you're going to get somewhere between. 70 and 100 if you weigh 200 pounds, you're going to get somewhere between 140 and 200 if you're heavier and have more weight to lose You can use one one gram per pound of your goal weight or one gram per pound of lean body mass. There's lots of ways to do that. But focusing on being in a calorie deficit and getting protein is going to help you maintain muscle and stay full. And one of the main reasons people quit their diets is because they can't stay full. There's just too much restriction. Another way you can make that easier is by increasing your intake of fruits and vegetables. This is a really good way to increase your fiber, your exposure to different micronutrients and polyphenols. It's also an Awesome, awesome way to stay nourished if calories are at a premium because as you probably know, plants are particularly high in a lot of different nutrients. Moving on to the second to last question, this is, should I use free weights or machines? And this is a binary question as if to say, like, you can only choose one. And the fact of the matter is you should probably use both in your training. Free weights and machines are both really, really good for different things and for different situations. And so you might not know exactly when to use a free weight and when to use a machine, But for most people, I tend to find that free weight compound movements are really good. Things like squats, lunges, rows, presses. Um, But for novices, they can be a little bit intimidating because of a lack of stability. So instead, you might use a cable row over a barbell row. You might use a goblet squat or a leg press over a barbell squat. Um, You might use something like a Smith machine to help in create some more external stability on something like a Romanian deadlift. This is all a continuum. You'll use them both. And the last question is, what supplements should I take? And I wanted to provide a very general recommendation that would apply to almost all populations. And the supplements that I think everybody could benefit from taking, I'll keep it very simple and I'll just name three. The first is an omega-3 supplement. These are the fatty acids that help our omega-3 and omega-6 ratios line up in a way that's effective or, or healthy for us, I should say, in that if you have too many omega-6s and not enough omega-3s, it can cause some issues. And these omega-3 fats tend to be pretty good for a lot of different things. They're often found in fish oil, so you'll often heard... Uh, Here, these products referred to as fish oil, but really what we're after is the omega-3 fatty acid. The next supplement I recommend is creatine, which is typically thought of as a sports performance supplement, but it's really, really beneficial for a lot more than that. It's good for your brain. It's good for cholesterol. It's good for blood sugar, and it's phenomenal for helping with strength and recovery. And Even if your goals aren't necessarily to get as big and strong as possible, if you're exercising, I think it's worth taking. The last supplement I recommend for almost everybody to keep on hand is a protein powder, particularly a whey protein powder or a protein powder from two different kinds of plants, ideally something like pea. And brown rice. You want multiple plants so you get the different amino acids, but that will help you hit those protein targets I mentioned earlier. All right, guys, there you have it. Those are some of the simplest answers I could give you to 10 of the questions I am asked most often. I want to thank you for tuning in to today's episode and encourage you to hit that subscribe button if you have not. And if you are a subscriber and you haven't left, yet left me a five-star rating and review on either iTunes or Spotify, doing that would make a huge difference for me and it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you on the next one.